Coming up on Tech Nation, a puzzling piece of technology we don't often think about, if ever. I speak with Stanford history professor Tom Mullaney about the Chinese typewriter. Then on Tech Nation Health, it's the 50th anniversary of the Summer of Love. And in the field of healthcare, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us how we're still feeling the love. And yes, cannabinoids are being scientifically tested as therapeutics. Also joining me is Amit Munshi, the president and CEO of Arena Pharmaceuticals. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Whether we're talking about skyrocketing health care costs or burdensome health insurance payments, as everyone knows, even with insurance, in the event that you have an emergency or a condition of significance, your share of the financial bill is substantial. So what does this mean? Well, what you're looking at is wait for it, success. It sure doesn't feel that way when you're looking at the bill, but this kind of experience is what happens when innovation produces. That's right, new innovation, often developed under the mantra of R&D, the convenient initials for research and development, and hidden just below the surface in startups and pipelines inside large companies. Well, all of this scientific and technological innovation in the healthcare field is producing more and more every day. This means that innovation has momentum, and the ability to further innovate expands even more. People always ask me, why doesn't faster, better, cheaper happen with health care costs? Well, actually, it does. But the significant costs that you are seeing are the part which is brand new innovation. When it's new, it's at its highest cost and therefore highest price. Better, faster, cheaper only returns palpable dividends when the product doesn't change. Now, better, faster, cheaper has without a doubt contributed to innovation. When the underlying computing product, including the software, built in a building block, plug-and-play fashion, can be had for pennies, then it's only the new innovation on top of that that you're paying for. You want affordable health care? Next time, insist to your doctor and hospital that you only want procedures and tests and drugs that were available 20 years ago. Now, 20 years ago, that technology was pretty cool. It was the latest and greatest then. But now, who goes in and asks for old technology? In fact, we assert it would be inhumane to not offer the very best technology to everyone. And I agree. But the problem is, our ways for paying for all this has been outpaced by our ability to innovate new products. And the current economic model? Well, it's just not up to the task. For one thing, we have to understand that the laws of economics are man-made. It's not like, say, the law of gravity. Jump out a second-story window, and in no time at all, you've landed on the ground. 
economic systems must be very carefully built, and they only ever work for so long, often spun out of kilter by new technological innovation. Remember guns and butter? In that case, sailing ships took months to bring guns one way and butter the other, crossing back and forth between England and the colonies. We could see the simple trade slowed down because it was slow. Add in the southern colonies and the slave trade. These ships didn't just drop off the slaves and head back to Africa with an empty load. Economic systems that work need to work systemically. And any system where parts of it can change fast and dramatically, well, they just can't be expected to work year after year. And so we must rethink the economics of what we're doing here. Trying to change health insurance as a fix as to how we're going to solve the cost of health care? It's like trying to fix an entire chair, but we can only make adjustments to the same one of its legs. Paying for health care while embracing these new innovations? This is going to require some serious thought. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, the challenges, the history, the culture of the Chinese typewriter. Stanford professor Tom Mullaney tells us it was so unimaginable the first one was only a rumor. Then on Tech Nation Health, it's the 50th anniversary of the Summer of Love. Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us how its experimentation has grown into reputable therapeutics in healthcare today. In fact, cannabinoids are among the therapeutics being tested by Arena Pharmaceuticals. Amit Munchi, Arena CEO, joins me. Tom Mullaney is an associate professor of history at Stanford University and the author of The Chinese Typewriter, A History. At the very top of page one, he quotes from an issue of the Chinese Students Monthly of 1913. The typewriter was invented to suit the English language, and not the English language, the typewriter. I asked him, what was the Chinese Students' Monthly, and why would they be interested in the design of what we in the West consider a typewriter, especially in 1913? The Chinese Students' Monthly was probably the most important periodical news avenue, uh, venue for essays and thoughts by overseas Chinese students in the United States, which at the turn of the century is a really vibrant, uh, very dynamic group that are at Harvard and MIT and Columbia and then across the Midwest and into the, uh, the West Coast with Berkeley and Stanford and elsewhere. They were not only going about their studies, but they were thinking back to 
their home country, their homeland, their home civilization, and trying to think through various modernizing efforts that were going on back home and how they could contribute to them. And one of these was the question of the communications revolution, telegraphy, typewriting, other kinds of information technology that were not at that point compatible or uh, amenable to Chinese language and its non-alphabetic writing system. So it was a big puzzle for them. While in the West, the manual typewriter was just exploding. exploding. Every business had it. Typewriter boys, typewriter girls. Exactly. <laughs> Everybody exactly. had them. And yet the Chinese language, it's not an alphabet letter based Wait, no. wait a minute. We can't put it on these more exactly. keys. Exactly. It's the one major world language that has neither an alphabet nor a syllabary. So like this, so you put these three these, things together these, and then You put that these things together word. and it becomes a word. And Every uh, word's a word. <laughs> every word's a word or can be combined with another character to produce longer words. And this was a concept, a phenomenon, a place, a person. And this mode of writing was simply not what the original inventors and manufacturers of the typewriter had in mind. They were completely wedded, and understandably so, completely wedded to the English language at the inception of the typewriter and more broadly to the Latin alphabet and to alphabets in general. And they did a remarkable job over the course of the first 50 years of the typewriter in the post-Civil War period to expand, to stretch the typewriter out to Hebrew and Arabic and, of course, uh, Cyrillic and, and German and French. But the one language they could not get their mind around was Chinese. Well, I love that the first Chinese typewriter wasn't real. It was a rumor reported in 1900 in the San Francisco Examiner right here <laughs> exactly. in San Francisco. It was a figment of imagination that when I first encountered it, it's, it's in essence, if you were to look at it, it is a cartoon of a massive, massive building-sized keyboard, a typewriter. And this uh, typically uh, comparably tiny man, um, you know, cause it's scaling up and down these rows and rows of keys. And when I first saw this cartoon, which then kind of got iterated out in different ways, at first I thought, okay, this is a straightforward case of the cartoonist trying to make fun of the Chinese language, make fun of China. And this was a period, of course, just ferocious uh, anti-Chinese racism, anti-Asian racism. So it seemed that way. And then I kind of sat with it for many, many years and I realized, wait a minute. Yes, it is a denigration of China and Chinese language, but it, it also is revealing something else deeper inside it. Why, when the Western mind thinks of a typewriter, do they immediately think of keys? There is absolutely no requirement that a typewriter have keys. And in fact, many of the earliest Western typewriters didn't. Uh, but something, there was a whole wild west of different kinds of typewriters. Typewriters with no keys, typewriters with two keyboards, uppercase and lowercase, all on you know one keyboard. Typewriters you manipulated with just one hand. There was a whole Wild West, but something around 1900 changed. All that diversity in the Western typewriter died out, and the only thing left in the market and then eventually in the imagination 
was the typewriter that we now know and love and consider to be synonymous with typewriter. The, the Remington, the Olivetti, the Underwood, the single shift keyboard typewriter. And so that cartoonist is sitting down and saying, okay, a typewriter is a machine with keys, one key per letter. Chinese doesn't have letters. It has characters. There are thousands of these characters. Ergo, in conclusion, a Chinese typewriter must, must, must be the size of a building with a guy scurrying up and down it. It actually revealed the lack of creativity in the technological imagination in the West more than it said anything about China or the Chinese language. It reminded me of what the answer would be if 30 years ago, you asked somebody, what's a telephone? Yeah, yeah. And it's like, well, we now have these really huge cell phones, but who would have those? Exactly. Normally, you pick these up, and you've got buttons on them. and Exactly. Thing. And now it's like a phone. It's everything but a phone. Exactly. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. In, in fact, we have to retrofit smartphones with things that remind us of phones, like the dial tone. The, I love it when people have like a ring on it. Exactly. It's like, it's like yeah, an old exactly. And of course, phone. that's just an MP3 file or some sort of audio <laughs> file that's baked into. And in the high end ones, they actually have it vibrate a little. Because <laughs> exactly. when your phone rang, everything kind of vibrated exactly, on the table. Exactly. You know. No, there is no such thing as technology in isolation or in a vacuum. There is only ever technology, whether it's a phone, whether it's a typewriter, in specific physical forms. And um, whatever physical form a technology takes doesn't exhaust all the different possibilities that that technology could have taken. But when it sets into a mode, when the concrete sets and, it, and it's the Remington machine or it's a certain type of thing, it is very hard for engineers and companies and everyday users to imagine that another world is possible. And that's what the students in that article in the Chinese uh, Student Monthly uh, were talking about, that, wait a minute, someone decided that this is what the typewriter is and that Chinese isn't compatible with this. Well, no, 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 that's not the relationship. The typewriter serves language. Language doesn't serve the typewriter. So we've got to rethink the typewriter. Now, these were very interesting students. I mean, in 1916, the New York Times ran a detailed story about, is it Zhao Hukun? It would be uh, Zhou Hukun. Yeah, Zhou Hukun. Hukun. Uh -huh. And uh, his design for a Chinese typewriter, he was an MIT graduate. The headline reflected the nomenclature of the time. Chinaman invents Chinese typewriter using 4,000 characters. Exactly. At the early stages of this history, in, uh, including the student Joe Hokun at MIT and also another student at NYU, these were brilliant young men. Joe Hokun was the first ever recipient of a Master's of Science in Aeronautical Engineering, the first MS degree in aeronautical engineering ever to be awarded in the United States, was awarded to who is also the inventor of what will go on to become the first mass-manufactured Chinese typewriter. And it, it goes to show, I mean, when Joe got on the, literally when he got on the boat as a boxer indemnity scholar, you know, with this scholarship that the money comes from the period of the boxer uprising and the suppression force after that has a very storied history. But when he got on the boat with his fellow students to study in the U.S., they were told, you know, you're, you're supposed to go to the U.S. to study so-called useful majors, engineering, mathematics, um, maybe certain kinds of political philosophy, so that you can come home and help build your country when you return. 
He started out building ships, but he decided, actually, there's something else that we need more, which are modern information technologies for the Chinese language. So he gave up building aircraft to build a typewriter. Uh, and he succeeded in both. Actually, after his typewriter career, he went back and became an engineer back in aeronautical and ship design. But these were absolutely brilliant uh, minds. Hey, an engineer's an engineer. Show us exactly. something that needs building. We're in there. We're exactly. in there. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Tom Mullaney, an associate professor of history at Stanford University. His book is The Chinese Typewriter, A History. Well, you talked about mass production, getting into China. The Japanese had some role in this. Yes, they did. The story of modern Chinese information technology really cannot be told without also folding in the story of Japan for a whole set of reasons. But put simply, Japan shares the same challenges as China when it comes to modern information technology. Now, Japan... The language does have a phonetic writing system called kana. It's you know, katakana and hiragana. But uh, a major subset of the Japanese language is kanji. And kanji is simply the Japanese word for hanzi, which means Chinese character. And these were imported into the language many, many centuries ago. And so Japan and Japanese engineers were in certain sense in the same boat as China to figure out how do we participate in this new information technology revolution. And there was a back and forth. There was sharing of information and insights between Japanese and Chinese engineers, a, an even more acute and, uh, and painful history from the perspective of China uh, is, of course, the Second World War, or what in mainland China is known as the eight-year war of resistance against Japan, um, and what in the U.S. is the, you know, the Pacific theater. This, uh, during this time, uh, a Japanese typewriter company, the manufacturer of Japanese typewriters, actually with the force of their 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 corporate network, but also at the with the force of arms, was able in essence to take over the entire Chinese typewriter market and hold it for maybe two decades. Uh, and uh, this was a source of uh, of major embarrassment and, and and shame for many Chinese typewriter engineers and entrepreneurs. Uh, but there was very little that could be done about it in the 40s. It wasn't until the early communist period in the 1950s when China regained control of the of the typewriter market. Well, there's Chairman Mao. <laughs> Not only do we have official Maoist typewriters, uh -huh. we have uh, Maoist language reform, which is directly, directly connected to how one would design a typewriter. Absolutely. So the, 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 the Maoist period, the 1950s and 60s and 70s, is a, is a, is a complex, uh, for many a very painful, but a, but a, a, and for many a very positive, but a very complex period of time that we're still, as historians of China, coming to understand more deeply. The book, in the book, the, the Maoist period shows up very heavily in a way I wasn't expecting as, uh, you know, when I set out on this book, which was the story of Mao-era Chinese communist typists. And uh, these typists were producing the kind of, you know, repetitive propagandist language that you would expect from the era. They found themselves typing... Chairman Mao, Chairman Mao, Mao Zedong, Mao Zedong, 
During the Korean War, there was a massive propaganda campaign of resist America, aid Korea, these various catchphrases. And so typists as well as typesetters working for newspapers thought to themselves, well, if I'm constantly typing this phrase or these phrases, I'm constantly setting these phrases, why don't I take these characters and put them really close together on my machine or on my typewriter, on my uh, my character rack in the newspaper hall so that I can reach and just grab them all it's at once. It's a QWERTY moment. <laughs> it's a QWERTY moment. It's a predictive text moment. Uh, and it has long-standing implications for the structure of Chinese IT. Predictive text only really becomes a major issue, a major player in Western IT in the 90s, really into the 2000s. Predictive text, clustering together these, these words that go together in real speech, has been part of Chinese IT since the 1950s. Uh, and this is not something you often hear about, that, that in the case of modern IT, that China, quote-unquote, got there first. We're, we're okay with, with that, with the fact that China invented movable type and paper. and Okay, but in the modern period, the alphabetics rule the day, Right. And when you begin to scratch at the surface of that history, it actually turns out differently than we expect. Now, I do have to say not everybody got the QWERTY reference, Q-W-E-R-T-Y. If you're sitting at your computer, look down at your keyboard. Tell us what it means. The QWERTY uh, layout, the layout of the letters on the on the keyboard is, uh, is, is kind of one of those those passionate subjects for uh, for typewriter collectors and typewriter files this and there's that famous story about uh, you know how did qwerty uh, how did the arrangement of qwerty take hold there were competitors there were alternates uh, alternate possibilities a very famous one being the being the dvorak keyboard uh, and this question of how did it win the day um, and this is this is it's as a historian of china and chinese information technology I, I'm also fascinated by this story, but I also think it's a little bit quaint and uh, and a little bit small scale. In the case of the, I love it when you talk dirty. Like I, I'm that. talking dirty now. I'm going to talk, I'm, and I, I know there are typewriter files, and they are very active online. So I don't know what this is going to. But in the case of the Western typewriter, there was one dominant layout uh, in the case of English, QWERTY, and then maybe one serious contender, Dvorak, and then there were a very small number of other competitors. So we're talking about one dominant and one major competitor. In the case of the Chinese typewriter, every single machine for every single typist had a different arrangement. Every single tray bed of every single Chinese typewriter was customized, was different. So there were tens of thousands of different arrangements that were not really competing with each other, but were that were in the mix, let's say. And uh, so when I see one dominant layout and then one, you know, one main competitor, and then I think to China and there are tens of thousands of layouts, I think, okay, I want to invite my typewriter file friends over and show them my Chinese typewriter. And then let's talk about uh, the QWERTY story again from a, from a different perspective. To think that this is just old technology, old language. This continues through this day. Uh, you start the book, you're even in the introduction, haven't even gotten to chapter one, with what happened at the Beijing Olympics mm -hmm. in 2008 that 
language and how they organized the Parade of Nations, it was a problem. Mm-hmm. I, At least for us, not it for was, them. It, it was. It was. <laughs> I, so I, I, uh, the Parade of Nations, the opening ceremony of the 2008 Olympics and every Olympics uh, where the various you know, delegations, national delegations, march around the grounds of the main, main, uh, uh, you know, the main ring, is is one that, according to official International Olympic Committee regulations, like in the rule book, is supposed to be organized alphabetically, in whatever alphabet, uh, you know, in whoever's country's alphabetic order we find ourselves in. So if we're in the United States, it's alphabetic order in English. But we're, if, if we're in a, a Russian city, then it will be the Cyrillic alphabet according to uh, Russian alphabetic order. And uh, this, on the face of it, sounds really generous. It sounds very, uh, uh, very, very Catholic, very... Uh, very relativist. It, it embraces all cultures. It embraces the world. It's universal. Well, then the IOC, then then Beijing wins the the bid, and and uh, of course in the run up to the preparations for two thousand eight, uh, this there's an embarrassing moment, which is this will be the first time in Olympic history when the parade of nations will take place in a country whose language has no alphabet, and so what do we do? Uh, and we can't look at the rule. You can't look at the rule. The rule has suddenly been exploded. It has been revealed as a, in the book I call it a, a kind of pretender to the throne of universalism. It has been revealed to be a kind of uh, uh, a fake bargain or a fake universalism. And and so China, the 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 organizing committee really does something quite savvy and naughty and brilliant. They decide, okay. We are going to organize the Parade of Nations according to a, a, a sequence that has a very deep history in the Chinese language, but that basically the viewing audience from the rest of the world will have no idea what's going on. Um, and they do it by the number of strokes uh, that it takes to compose each Chinese character in the name of each of these nations, the Chinese translation of these nations. Uh, I go into it, into the actual logic of it in the book. It has a very old logic. It would be very familiar to Chinese viewing audiences. But it was – I, I feel certain that it was a decision by the Beijing committee to say, all right, you know, we are a major superpower we are now one of the major players on earth. This is our first Olympics. Everyone cited the Beijing Olympics. This is the coming of age story of Beijing. And uh, we are going to kind of embarrass you a little bit. Um, and the Parade of Nations, when when the broadcasters were, were trying to narrate what was going on. Bob Costas. Bob Costas. Matt totally, Lauer, the Matt Lauer, they couldn't, they, they, they couldn't <laughs> make heads or tails. They were laughing about it. And there were major conspiracy theories online in the, in the kind of blogosphere that, uh, that NBC had, had cut up the Parade of Nations and reordered it in such a way that the U.S. team would be last so that Americans would watch longer and that would equal more ad revenue. There was a, a two-day conspiracy theory involving hundreds of posts. And it was all ridiculous because it's, it was simply that China sequenced the Parade of Nations according to an alternate logic, a logic that is – uh, born out of the the history of the Chinese writing system, not alphabetic writing systems, and I, I thought it was a most brilliant move 
that the, that the, that the organizing committee in Beijing could have possibly done. I'm speaking with Stanford professor Thomas Mullaney, the author of The Chinese Typewriter, A History. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation, Biotech Nation, and Tech Nation Health are available at iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft shows us how the summer of love still lives in healthcare some 50 years on. And Amit Munchie from Arena Pharmaceuticals talks about three drugs they have in testing one of which is a cannabinoid. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I'm speaking with Stanford professor Thomas Mullaney, the author of The Chinese Typewriter, A History. Now, there's been a real resurgence in people loving manual typewriters, you know, and they've, they have festivals, they have groups, they have meetups, they have all these things. Um, and yet, even if you eschew that, look down at your computer keyboard again, and there is the shift key. Absolutely. Why does it say shift? <laughs> right, right. Now there there are legacies there are legacies that are baked in to not only our laptops and our desktops but but our mobile devices, our iPhones that are the holdovers that are the legacies of the manual typewriting era and for that matter deeper still into the age of 19th century telegraphy and uh, it's it's one of the joys of getting to do this kind of work and being an historian is because you get to do uh, what's often considered an archaeology, like a dig. You get, to, you get to dig into this object that's in front of you, this computer, this typewriter, and you, and you ask the question, where is the history that is embedded inside it and where does that come from? Where does the shift key come from? So the shift key is a holdover from one of the three, let's call them, species of typewriters that used to walk the earth back in the, you know, in the late 1800s. 
there were uh, there was one species of of typewriter. I like thinking of them as kind of mammals running the earth, and one that had all of the capitals and all of the lowercase letters of the of the of the alphabet all on one keyboard. So it's called the double keyboard, and there was no shift key because you, if you wanted the capital T or capital L, you didn't. You just you just press the button with that symbol on it. Well, another species of typewriter at the time is uh, what's called the single keyboard or the shift keyboard machine. And the basic idea there was you have the lowercase letters of the, the alphabet on the keyboard in front of you. And if you want a capital T, a capital S, a capital W, you depress this button, which is called shift, to get to the upper registers of each key, and that's how you can get it. And this is a, this is a brilliant move in the case of English language because uh, it's an incredibly small percentage of the letters that appear in any English language book are capital letters. It's something like 5% of Moby Dick are made up of, I, I forget the exact percentage, but a very small percentage of all the letters in Moby Dick or uh, in other classic literature is made up of capital letters and 90 plus percent are these lowercase letters of the alphabet. So it makes sense to kind of displace these uppercase letters to this so-called shift level. Well, uh, when computer designers were building these new machines in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and especially into the 70s, 80s, and 90s, they simply copied and pasted the QWERTY keyboard of old with its shift key, with its alt key, with its space bar, and they brought it into this new domain of computing. But the legacy of mechanical typewriting was there and has been there ever since. Well, it's easy for us to imagine, well, just shift to uppercase. I mean, it's just a, it became a, a, an ephemeral, you know, idea. And yet, at the time when they meant shift, you actually, you know, you, you took some, it took some force to hold that thing down. And the whole carriage went up. So when the, so when the striker would hit, it would hit on the capital letter exactly. side, not exactly. on the smaller letter side. Exactly. And it's like, you, I mean, you were going to lose weight if you were going to do some real. <laughs> and you had to, you know, it took time to do that and yep. you had to have everything be, I mean, this was really, it took some some uh, real energy to do that. So when people say, well, why didn't they just put Chinese letters on the bottom and Chinese letters on the top? Uh -huh. You uh -huh. would have been... I no, mean, it was. It, it, it's and it, a humanly impossible. It was absolutely impossible, and um, and it and it's uh, you know what I try to discuss in the book is not only a Chinese story, but also the story of Arabic and Hebrew and uh, Thai, and Siamese, Siamese at the time, <laughs> um, and, and 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 what's important is that not every writing system on Earth, even if it's alphabetic, not every writing system has uppercase letters. Thai does not have upper and lowercase letters. And so when you take uh, these uh, – Arabic does not have upper and lowercase letters. And so there's this question of when you take this, this object, this Remington, this Olivetti, this Underwood, and you begin uh, to take it around the world and try to stretch it so that it fits in more and more and more languages, well, you kind of have to – think about all of the unspoken assumptions about language that are already baked into the machine, like the, the idea of uppercase. Uh, when you build a Siamese or a Thai typewriter, you have to take some of the letters and stick them 
on the uppercase shift part of the machine, but they're not uppercase letters. And uh, and the engineers that worked on this in the teens and 20s and 30s had a really interesting approach to language. For them, when they were tasked with building, let's say, a Hebrew typewriter, they, they didn't think, okay, Hebrew is the language of X and it has this long literary and philosophical and theological. For them, it was an engineering question. Hebrew to them was English backwards. So the only thing that I as an engineer need to worry about is changing just the carriage advance mechanism on the Remington machine so that when I punch a button, it doesn't advance one way. It advances the other. And voila. We start on the right and we go to the left. And voila, we have a Hebrew typewriter. And that's how they thought of Hebrew was was mechanistically. And... um, and then they, they did that very successfully for many decades. They, dozens and dozens and dozens of languages had their Remington machines and Olivetti. But the one language that they could not stretch their imagination, they couldn't think outside the box, they couldn't think outside the typewriter that they knew, they couldn't stretch this machine to fit Chinese. They had to start over. And that's why I think it really was uh, these brilliant Chinese overseas Chinese students and Chinese engineers who weren't burdened by these deep-seated assumptions about what a typewriter has to be. They, they started from scratch. They said, this is the problem. How do we build this? Uh, assumptions, let's put aside assumptions. How do we solve this problem? And that's why I think their fresh eyes um, kind of got them there. Let's also understand that they really understood Chinese and oh, yes. Chinese language. And it's one thing to go in and tell an engineer, a designer about a problem, mm. um, but if they don't experience it, they frequently miss whole essentials. That's very whole true. Whole essentials. So That's very true. Th- they knew they had to throw it all out. <laughs> That's very true. There really wasn't an option here. Now, Tom, you didn't sit at your desk and Google all this. This was <laughs> quite a journey. How did how did this all come about? What did you do to bring this all together? Uh, well, it started 10 years ago, uh, fortuitously, accidentally, and uh, I, won't, I won't burden you with the long-winded story about that, but basically one early afternoon in my office at Stanford, uh, a, a cascade of thoughts eventually left me with the question, of what does a Chinese typewriter look like? And I and I that question formed in my mind. I realized I had never seen one in the flesh. I didn't even know if they existed, but I assume they must. And uh, from that moment to today, uh, took me to not only to China, not only to Taiwan, but but Japan, uh, many many collections across the United States, but then also. Denmark and Sweden and France and Germany and Great Britain uh, and collections all across the world because this puzzle, this puzzle of modern Chinese information technology, how do you fit 70,000 characters onto a machine? How do you build Morse code when you don't have letters? How do you build a keyboard that has no keys? I mean, these really profound questions. It became a super magnet for engineers and eccentrics and linguists and business people all over the world. Uh, And they were drawn to it because of the idea of the lucrative payoff that they could have if they solved the puzzle. But I think also because it tested their minds, it tested their imagination. And as a result, the story of modern Chinese IT 
is scattered in small collections, in larger collections, all around the world. Um, and one byproduct of this, which, which is, was very exciting, is that accidentally, I sort of woke up one day about three years ago, and I had realized, I looked around my office at Stanford, uh, which was getting incredibly crowded, and I realized that I had accidentally amassed the largest personal collection of Chinese typewriters, Japanese typewriters, Chinese and Japanese word processors and computers, and then, you know, typing manuals and photographs and ephemera, um, in essence, because I had to. I had to build this archive from the ground up because there is no one-stop shop uh, archivally or a museum that really can deliver this all to you. And uh, yeah, it was – I did not know that some of the <laughs> the biggest insights that went, that fed into this book would happen in – in in London, uh, in uh, in uh, Delaware, in all just just all across the world, insights came um, in in every in every shape and size, and it's been one of the best friends I could imagine. It's going to be very hard to to let this to move on, I guess. <laughs> well, we do need full disclosure, and yes, there was a movie called The Chinese Typewriter. It was 1979. Yes, it starred Tom Selleck. Does this in any way? derail respect for your academic work? Do people remind you of this? Well, I had to, you know, when I, I definitely was cautioned uh, when I set out on this book and, uh, that, you know, this is, this is a, uh, this is a risk. Um, you're, it's, it, it's, it sounds very kind of, it can be done in a, in a, in a, in a real quick, uh, uh, kind of aphoristic way and probably would do maybe would do well but would would kind of never get down beneath the surface of this and people were aware of I don't know MC Hammer named or one of the famous MC Hammer dances and you can't touch this is named the Chinese typewriter and it's this pop culture uh, reference and um, but this is something I, I say to I know my own students and then to anyone who seeks my advice you 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 just have to trust that part of you that is more intelligent than the other part of you that part of you that i guess some people call it instinct but it's when when i heard the words chinese typewriter come out of i guess my own mouth at one point and then i started to look into it i knew full stop i knew that i was going to spend the next 8 9 10 years on this project i didn't know why at the time and I didn't know what I would find. I didn't know where it would take me. But I knew that and I trusted my gut on that. And I got I got some very funny faces, including my own advisors. I said, you're, you're going to write a book on what? And I kind of said, you know, pl- you know I, just, just, just trust me on this and uh, we'll see how it turns out. Uh, and I, I give a lot of credit to my advisors. I give a lot of credit to my senior colleagues at Stanford. Uh, and of course, to my my friends, um, most of all to my wife Kiata, whose birthday it is. Uh, and I, it's just uh, they said, okay, you know, we trust you. We we've got your back. Go forth and 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 try this out. And uh, that's why I take such length in the acknowledgments to try to thank because it, it I, I had to go out on a limb with this project. Now, Tom, I understand this is the first of two books. It is the second book is not written yet. The second book is almost entirely researched um, because over those 10 years, I was also traveling to collections 
uh, about the Chinese computer, which will be the subject of this next book. I decided maybe about four years ago that I faced a crossroads. Either this current book was going to be delayed by many years and achieve kind of phone book size proportions and just would be this unwieldy beast, or I was going to give short shrift to this incredibly complex and equally rich history of the post-World War II story of Chinese computing and new media by kind of shoving it into an afterword or a single chapter at the end of the book. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't like either of those options. Um, you know, as a historian, you're always, you always want to do justice to your material, but also do, do, you know, do justice to your reader. And so I said, you know what? I opened all my files that had to do with computing and media and machine translation and uh, optical character recognition, all this stuff that I'm now I'm just very jazzed about. And I just clicked and dragged it <laughs> into its own <laughs> folder. And I said later and um, and MIT Press, the, the publisher of the book, was 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 really wonderful. I submitted a, a two book proposal to them and they immediately understood why it needed to be two two uh, two different interrelated but two different projects um, and I'm very very thankful for that so now I can take a step back I can take a deep breath and ask the question how does this book want to be written because it doesn't want to be written I can feel it it doesn't want to be written in the same way as the Chinese typewriter it's got its own personality and I'm, I want to listen to it I want to let it take shape so it's going to be a while before you come back and see it. <laughs> I hope not too long, but I would but love to when the time long. comes. Tom, thank you so much, and very definitely come back and see us. Thank We'd you for it. having me. Thank you. My guest today is Stanford professor Thomas Mullaney. The book is The Chinese Typewriter, A History. It's published by the MIT Press. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. Today on Tech Nation Health, we remind ourselves that it's the 50th anniversary of the Summer of Love, near as we are to the hate Ashbury. The big joke is if anyone remembers it, they weren't there. Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft. Groovy, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, picking up on that you know, summer of love, uh, a lot of folks in that era started experimenting with some mind-altering substances. Some are still experimenting with them. But and, and that, in a sense, um, hurt their ability maybe to be used in more legitimate ways. And what's been interesting in just the last couple of years, we're starting to see legitimate scientists, psychiatrists, psychologists start to study some of these ancient technologies, things like magic mushrooms, psilocybin, uh, or some other drugs, MDMA, like known as ecstasy, and how they might be used in actual clinical settings from depression, PTSD, uh, to end-of-life care. Okay, now you got to get specific on some of these because a bunch of people are out there going, no way. Right now, Excuse me, no way, man. <laughs> no. Well, don't try this at home, but what's been interesting, one particular example that's uh, gotten a lot of uh, interest in the last couple of years is the idea that, um, let's say, the issue of, of end-of-life care uh, or depression might be benefited might be benefited by a single dose of psilocybin, magic mushroom. And a study was recently completed um, out of NYU and another at John Hopkins um, 
uh, led, co-led by a psychologist named Tony Bossis, who spoke at our Exponential Medicine Conference last year, that described this randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled trial where folks who had cancer and were entering hospice care were randomized to see, receive one trip, one you know, one dose of psilocybin um, under controlled conditions, you know, just in a in a, in a chilled out session, uh, mentored by a psychologist there, and they studied the effect of this, and they didn't know what pill they were getting. It became obvious through the through the session in most cases, but what they found was this had a profound uh, experience for both the patients and their families. They felt more connected uh, to the global universe. Many have had sort of spiritual experiences, as many have described, who've tried it recreationally. They use less pain medications. Uh, some of them actually live longer, have better quality of life. Um, so that was one example in the setting of end-of-life care. A lot, a lot of anxiety might be involved with that depression. It's now being studied in PTSD uh, and potentially uh, uh, de- severe depression. So we're seeing these you know, powerful chemicals that have been essentially outlawed now being studied as potentially very powerful levers, lev- levers uh, as therapeutics as well. Well, certainly the cannabinoids are a big surprise that we're studying that. Yes, those have now been legalized here in California, in Colorado, and other, elsewhere. And obviously there were medical marijuana clinics before that, and they do seem to play a role. We've used them. I'm an oncologist uh, for many years in, in managing nausea or uh, in, in impacting uh, uh, satiety, folks wanting to eat a bit more, uh, which is helpful in some cancer patients. But it seems to play a pretty interesting role in some forms of epilepsy, uh, certainly pain management and beyond. This is sort of a larger question that you mentioned earlier, you alluded to earlier, and that is if a particular drug gets a bad name, it stops being studied or it stops being taken seriously. Is Are we kind of over that or do you think that's sort of the nature of things? Well, many things have a, a plus side and a dark side. So many drugs can be abused. Even F, many FDA-approved drugs, uh, drugs of abuse, were in the middle of an opiate epidemic. And those are approved drugs uh, that, in many cases, are much more damaging and dangerous than, let's say, uh, marijuana. Um, I think we need to be careful about it, and but also be careful how we study these things. Some things would be quite anecdotal. When we're starting to see randomized placebo-controlled trials for things like psilocybin or M- M- uh MDMA, ecstasy, that might be used even in couples counseling to get folks bonded, maybe after a traumatic event uh, in, let's say, taking soldiers or folks at risk for PTSD after a particular uh, event, you know, we can start to measure these outcomes and they can potentially move through the FDA process and become real powerful uh, new armamentariums for our brain. Because today, in the world of psychiatry, antidepressants, uh, you wait, wait sometimes months to see if they work. They have other side effects. There are drugs that are being repurposed. Ketamine, which is a drug we use in the operating room for anesthesia, uh, can be given and seems to have a very immediate effect on folks with severe depression. And that's going through trials and has some promise as well. So new ways to look and unlock neuroscience, the brain, and some of these old chemicals and compounds and some newer ones as well. And 50 years ago, we couldn't look inside the brain. No fMRI hanging around. We couldn't look inside the brain. Maybe uh, people took uh, different sorts of trips. Uh, you know, it's been interesting here in the Bay Area. Some of these are being repurposed in a sense. Uh, LSD, uh, one of the major uh, uh, elements of the summer of love, is now being used not for full-on trips, but by entrepreneurs and coders doing what they call microdosing. So doses that don't take them on full trips, but by report, and I haven't tried this personally, uh, nor most of these drugs, uh, it seems to enhance uh, focus and creativity. And that is something that's very valued here in the entrepreneurial startup world, the ability to think creatively, and some of these drugs may play a role in breakthrough solutions, uh, not just in healthcare, but in technology and beyond. Nor most of these drugs? 
admitted nothing. I'm telling you. Silence is golden. <laughs> Daniel, thank you so much. Thanks, Mara. Dr. Daniel Kraft is chief correspondent of Tech Nation Health and the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. And yes, cannabinoids are being looked at as potential therapeutics. Amit Munchi is the president and CEO of Arena Pharmaceuticals. He talks about three drugs they're testing, one of which is a cannabinoid. I asked him directly, do you mean marijuana? Well, not exactly. So uh, as, as you might know, there's... You're not talking to mom here like, it wasn't really <laughs> marijuana, mom, you know. <laughs> the, uh, the objective here with this program is a fully synthetic compound that targets one of the receptors that marijuana hits among many. Uh, specifically, we hit something called the CB2 receptor, the cannabinoid 2 receptor. Uh, we believe that receptor is implicated in lots of pain conditions and specifically visceral pain. And again, this is a fully synthetic compound. It's not a derivative of marijuana. Uh, and is designed to target that receptor and alleviate pain associated with Crohn's disease, which is a uh, autoimmune condition associated with um, the gastroenterology. And very painful. Most patients will complain of uh, continuing abdominal pain even when their disease is in remission. And that's in phase two. That is in phase two, correct. Great. And you have another phase two drug in ulcerative colitis? Correct. So ulcerative colitis is another autoimmune condition also affecting the gastrointestinal tract. Uh, and we have a compound, uh, etrazomod, also in phase two development for that condition. And how does that work? That works by blocking uh, or agonizing something called S1P. S1P is a uh, specific receptor found on circulating immune cells, and it works by essentially stopping those immune cells from going to the site of the inflammation. So those happen to be two compounds that you're working on. And and for some listeners who aren't familiar with the phase one, phase two, phase three, what are you looking for in phase two with both of those drugs? Sure. So phase one is usually in healthy volunteers looking for just very simple safety. Phase two, you're really starting to think about, does the drug work? What's the right dose? What's the right administration? Is it once a day or twice a day? And you're looking for a clinical signal of both safety and efficacy. But in this time, it's in patients. So the phase two studies are often the first time you're in patients and you're looking for a clinical signal to say this drug works and this drug is safe in this patient population. So with respect to the cannabinoid compound and with the one in ulcerative colitis, what are you looking for in each of those specifically? What would be a success? Sure. So um, starting with the ulcerative colitis program, uh, there's a scoring system used in ulcerative colitis clinical trials. It's called the Mayo score. Uh, It was developed at the Mayo Clinic, um, and you're looking for a change that's statistically significant over placebo um, in that Mayo score. So that's a, it's a composite score. Less pain. Le- it's less pain. It's less uh, actual uh, inflammation in the gut. Uh, there's a combination of factors. Uh, there's a physician assessment, a patient assessment, and then the patients are also ass- assessed endoscopically using uh, actually going in and looking at, um, in this case, the gastrointestinal tract to see how much residual inflammation remains. Is that true with both the cannabinoid and the ulcerative colitis case? It's not. That's just for the ulcerative colitis. In the cannabinoid space, uh, it's really a pain. We're looking for improvement in pain, and that's a um, essentially a 10-point scale where the patient reports improvement in, in pain uh, over a period of time. So it's a, it's a much simpler set of um, endpoints in the cannabinoid study. 
Now, let's talk about that third compound. It's something in the cardiopulmonary area, PAH. What is that? So PAH is pulmonary arterial hypertension. It's essentially hypertension of the pulmonary artery that provides oxygen to the right side of the heart. Um, In these patients, some are um, patients who get this spontaneously. Some are patients who have a familial history. Um, Essentially, what happens is you have a constriction um, of the pulmonary artery. It causes the a lot of additional stress on the right heart, uh, and these patients have a high risk of mortality over a five-year period of time. My recollection is some of this hits young women. It does. It's uh, predominantly women. Um, so it, it's an exciting place to be. There's, we think there's still substantial unmet medical need. Uh, the drugs that are out there today um, don't fully cure the condition. You've got, again, a high percentage of patients who have a, an increase in mortality um, by year five, and our objective with this compound is to provide um, really the next generation of, uh, of therapies. And in fact, all three of our compounds, we believe, are the first or best in class. Um, and we think the, the ability to impact patient lives is, is, uh, is phenomenal ahead for us. What I think is so interesting about this is that you're in three different complete areas. I mean, three different diseases or conditions. And you're out there with each of them marching forward. You know, a lot of lot of companies, they, they say, well, we'll take one, you know, and see how that does. And then we'll start to trail along with the others. But you say, great, let's, let's roll the dice. Yeah. And we're, and we're excited because we're at a phase two stage um, and being able to turn multiple phase two data cards over and look at the results of the studies. And then we'll have to determine what we can take forward uh, as a small company forward ourselves versus find a potential partner. So that's an evaluation we'll do as, as the data comes in. Amit, thank you so much for coming in. Please come back and see us. Thank you, Maria. I appreciate your time. Amit Munchie is the president and CEO of Arena Pharmaceuticals. More information is available at arenafarm.com. That's arena, A-R-E-N-A, arenafarm.com. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn. Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.